0: Alright, come on in everybody. We'll go ahead and get started. And the guys were are passing out for anybody that didn't bring, never had a copy of the notes from the last couple weeks. We're going to finish those today, but it is the same ones that we've been using. We'll be on page 11. And if you're not going to family camp this afternoon, my family is leaving right after to head up to Mackinac for family camp. Looking forward to that. As you heard, Pastor Larry say in the first hour, we have a good group going, but if you're not going, pray for us this week that we'll have safety and a, and a good time. As Pastor Larry mentioned, we have a good number of folks that are going. The bad news with doing family camps starting on Sunday is that half the group goes on Saturday. So, some of them are already, some of them are already up there, and we'll uh, join them in a little bit uh, later tonight for that. So yeah, pray about that if you would, and think about going next year. We're going to, weather's supposed to cooperate this week, and it should be a great time. We are in our series, as you see on the front cover of your notes and on the screen, Change of Heart. This is week five of nine, and that idea of change of heart requires two things. So you've had two sets of notes dealing with those two things that are necessary for a change of heart. The first set of notes that you received uh, the front cover said, "A change of perspective." You need a change of perspective on the source, ultimately, of your of your issues, of your problems. Most of us, when we have things going on in our lives that are not to our liking, adverse circumstances or adverse relationships, then we look at the external. We look at the other person with whom we're in that relationship. We look at the circumstance that's not uh, to, to our liking. I don't minimize any of those. Those are all stressful. Those are all difficult. They're not ultimately the problem. If we're going to have a, a change of heart, we've got to have a change of perspective that goes from the outside to the inside. So the, so the Bible helps us deal with every situation and every person that we'll encounter. And it helps us to do that because there's been an internal change that prepares us for that that aids us in in that you will not I will not always be able to change the external circumstance I may not be able to change the uh, person with whom I'm in relationship and it may be a relationship that I can't get out of maybe I have to keep this job and I'm stuck with this boss I can't find another one. It pays too much. They're not hiring at other places. Whatever. I have to keep this job. Or in a marriage, you're supposed to keep your spouse. And you're supposed to keep your spouse except in rare circumstances. So in family, it's not like I can change or should change families because things are not going as I desire. So it requires this change of perspective from the outside to, to the inside. We saw that But then the second thing that's needed, and about which we've been talking the last few weeks, is a change of counselor. A change of counselor. And that change goes from those who have the same inside problem to someone who doesn't. I mean, if the first part that we dealt with is correct, and it is because the Bible teaches it, namely... That the ultimate problem for all of us is an inside job, not what's external to us. If that's the case, then we all carry this problem with us. So, therefore, we need a change of counselor or counselors from those who have the same internal problem we have to one who does not. And who is that one who does not, of course? It's God. So, what we need is a, a new counselor. Most of us are counseled by people who have the same problem we've got. God doesn't. Therefore, God sees you and sees your problems more clearly than anyone. You need this change of counselor. We need this change of counselor from other people to God. And God counsels, as we saw last week, through His Word. Through either your self-study of His Word or through the teaching of His Word, provided to you by by others. The truth is, if you're going to grow in your your life and in your Christian life, you need both of those. You need to be able to open the Bible, read it, place a passage in context, and then think about application of it to your life. And then you also need the preaching and teaching uh, of those who have given their life to to doing that through God's, God's church. You need both of them. That self-study piece is something we teach you how to do here. And we teach you how to do it in a class called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible that we teach every other fall. And then on the off-fall, we teach you another class that you've got to have called Master Plan for Life, which is a systematic theology for regular people. Those are the two classes we say everybody needs to take. We offer them in the fall. This fall, uh, it's Master Plan for Life that systematic theology covering the major doctrines of the Bible and how they apply to our lives, thus the name Master Plan for Life. And I teach those on Wednesday evenings starting in in September. So you'll hear us announce that. Because God is omniscient, God can accurately diagnose our problem and provide the solution. So I'm just trying to show you, friends, logically how this it 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 occurs that we need to turn to a different counselor and a different source of that counsel that new counselor is God because he doesn't have the problem that we carry around with ourselves and everybody else carries around with themselves and because God has written a book his counsel is contained in the Word of God in Scripture because this God who wrote Scripture is omniscient all-knowing then he knows you through and through. He made you. And he knows exactly what information needed to be included in that book he wrote. For you to be able to read it, apprehend it, apply it to your life. So the Bible can make the audacious claim that all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, training in righteousness so that The person of God may be, here's the audacious, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Every good work. The Bible is making the claim that either in precept or principle, it addresses all of your stuff. Yeah, that is pretty audacious, isn't it? That in a book, it's all in there. That God's word is sufficient. But the reason, see, it can be sufficient is because unlike any other book, its ultimate author is the omniscient God who knows everything. And so he knows you, he made you, he knows humanity, he knows the future, he knows where it's all going, he knows what you're going to encounter. And we sometimes get the idea that in the midst of our circumstances, and of course it's the circumstances that need to change, our tendency is to look outwards, that's what we do. We need a change of that, as, as we said. Our tendency is for us to think that God really doesn't know what's going on in my life and what needs to be done. But He does, and He, and he has written a counseling book called the Bible to tell you about it. So, lose the theology of those great theologians, the Allman Brothers. Some of you are old enough to remember the Allman Brothers Band from the 70s. okay? And their big hit was, Lord, I was born a rambling man. I'm trying to make a living and doing the best I can. And when it's time for leaving, I hope you'll understand that I was born a rambling man. So the Almond Brothers, I guess, are going to stand before the Lord and go, you know, I was born a rambling man. That's isn't all my fault. I'm trying to make a living. doing the best I can. So I hope you'll understand. He goes on to talk about I was born in the back of a Greyhound bus going down, right? So, and, and the Lord is supposed to understand all this. Because I need to inform the Lord of all of this. It's so easy for us to forget what we mean when we say God. When we say the Lord, we're talking about an all-knowing God. He knows you. He knows the circumstances in which he has placed you. And it's in those circumstances that he has sovereignly placed you that he commands you and me to follow his way. Knew all about it. Knows exactly what it is he's seeking to accomplish in it. He can do all of this because he is all-knowing so he can accurately diagnose our problem and provide our solution. Here's the way many people, though, go through life. Not thinking about God, not using God as their touchstone for themselves and others and their circumstances. They go through life this way. We are all creatures made in the image of the Creator, all of us. Whether we are Christians or not, all of us fit in that category, every person. And having been made in the image of God, it means we have a conscience. It means we have the ability to apprehend God. We have a God consciousness. We're conscious of the fact that there is a God, the Bible teaches. And we understand that there are laws in creation. There are laws in nature. That justice is supposed to be done. And so we get angry when we see injustice. All of us do. Every person in this room gets angry when you see injustice. You know why? Because that's built into you. You know why it's built into you? Because you're made in the image of God. So most people go through life with that. They've got this God consciousness. They've got this sense of injustice. They know that there are laws that are supposed to be followed in the moral universe that this moral God has, has constructed But because of the fall, because of sin, our own sin and the sin of others, it means the violations of others and by ourselves in that moral universe that God has made distorts everything. So on the one hand, so we are all, and I don't use this lightly, I'm not making fun when I use this term, but we are all to use the old psychological term schizophrenic from a theological standpoint we've got this memory of god we've got this idea of god it's with us all of us every human being and yet it's distorted because of sin it's distorted because of our sin and the sin that's perpetrated upon us by by others So I come into a world where I have this right expectation uh, that things ought to be fair and they ought to be just. And I very quickly find out they're not. And now I have to react to that. Now I've got to deal with that. I've got to deal with people who are not fair, they're not just. So I've got both of those things going on, and I deal with that injustice, that lack of fairness, this distortion of the way that I know it's supposed to be, because I was made to know that. I deal with this distortion my own way. I deal with it the way I see other people dealing with it. I bring people around me that agree with me on how we ought to deal with it. It's the way most people go through life. And what's required is the third element of a biblical worldview. A biblical worldview is three things creation, an understanding of what we were made to be, the fall sin and then the third one is redemption a biblical worldview has creation what we were made to be the fall what we become and then redemption what we're being restored to through christ and redemption is required and it's required from outside of us because remember the problem is ultimately inside So we need to be restored. We need to be redeemed. It's an inside problem, and it starts, dear friends, as a God problem. It starts as a God problem. I've got a problem with God. My problem is I know He's there, and I don't like Him. That's the person outside of Christ. He's there, and I don't like Him. And the reason I don't like him is he's apparently incompetent because he's messed things up. I know things are supposed to be different than they are, and look at this. Look at my, what do do we call it? Was there a TV show called My So-Called Life? There's something in my memory, a TV show or a song or something. But anyway, you hear people say stuff like My So-Called Life. In other words, it's just messed up. It's not the way it's supposed to be, and and people know that about their lives, and they resent that about their lives. They know it's supposed to be different than it is. That's the creation piece. That's the God consciousness piece. The fall piece means that I contribute to it not being the way it's supposed to be. Other people contribute to it not being the way it's supposed to be, and I resent the whole thing. I know God's there. I don't like Him. And so people live their lives with that. Romans 1, Romans chapter 1, verses 18 to 32. Romans 1, 18 to 32, tells you in that passage the dilemma of humanity. That we were made by the the, the Creator God, we're creatures made in His image, that we have this God consciousness, we know He is there. This is all what that passage is teaching. Chapter 2 of Romans says that everybody has a moral sense because of this. They have a conscience of right and wrong. But they have a bad hangover, bad memories with regard to God. Their experience with God hasn't been good. We don't like it. We're estranged from God. And so here's what Paul, who wrote that, says They did not want, I'm quoting, They did not want to retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. And so, professing themselves to be wise, they became fools. And it goes back to, I've got this memory of God. I've got this consciousness of God. I know He's there, but I don't like Him. I don't like the way He's run things. I don't like the way my so-called life has gone. And Because of that, I don't want to retain the knowledge of God. I don't want to think about God. If I do think about God, I want to create him in my image rather than the other way around. So I'll I'll worship Joel Osteen's God. And And I don't say that flippantly, but that's a different God. The God that you control by your words is not the God of Scripture. It's not the true and living God. The God that you, you speak your own reality into existence, that's not the world God made. But people want that world because they don't want the one God made because they don't want to think about it. So they would not retain the knowledge of God in their thinking. So we're banishing God from our thinking. And when you do that, it means... You don't know the world around you and you don't know yourself. And most people go through life like that. Resentful, kind of underneath, just a slow burn, trying to salve that in any way that they can. And Romans 1 explains it all. That's a biblical worldview. What we want to restore, what we want to see redeemed then is what we were made for, and that is a relationship with this God, the very one who gave us the idea that, yes, there are things that are right and wrong and just and unjust. And if you hate injustice, think about what God's going to do with it, how He's going to judge it. And so God is on this redemption project, and He's a counselor, and He's given us a book to counsel us with regard to our problems, which brings us to page 11. Top of page 11 says we've got four categories of problems. Theological problem, in this order, that's our problem with God. Psychological problem, our problem with ourselves, sociological. With others, ecological, the world in which we live. Now we talked about a bit, the first one, middle of page 11, last week. This theological problem, I beat on it again because it is the most important. It's first, it's foundational, all the other stuff flows from that. And if we're going to get it fixed, if we're going to get our issues fixed, issues about ourselves, issues in relation to other people, sociological, ecological if we're going to get that handled, it's going to have to start with where the problem started. And that is the, the theological problem. But now there is, secondly, the psychological problem. And we've seen that, at the bottom of page 11. The Greek word psyche, from which we get psyche, psyche, logos. Or the study of the soul is the proper proper definition of the word psychology. A psychologist is a person who studies the soul. He or she brings observations, corrections, and counsel to soul problems. And so I would just ask you to think about this, friends. Uh, Who is best equipped in the universe to address soul problems? Here's a suggestion. How about God? And if God wrote a book, and we're in it, that should be the first book to which you go to find out about yourself and what your problems are. And so God has thankfully done this. And I mentioned for you at the end of last week a couple of psalms, Psalm number 42, where the psalmist is talking to himself. Generally, that's you know a sign of somebody having some problems talking to themselves i saw a t-shirt the other day the guy says yes i talk to myself sometimes i just need an expert opinion (laughs) okay (laughs) so here's the psalmist though he's talking to himself because he's saying psalm 42 and verse 5 why are you downcast O my soul why so disturbed within me Talking to himself, okay, why am I, what's, what is up with me? Why is all this going on with me? Why am I so down? Why do I see things the way I do? He's talking to, the way you talk to yourself, the way I talk to myself. What is up with me? What is wrong with me? You know, why am I so stupid? Why do I say the wrong thing when I'm in front of people? That's why I never want to talk, talk to people because I always say the wrong, I always say the wrong thing. And so I'm just shy and I just pull away from people. So you're you're constantly thinking about you, and you're thinking about how you comes off to them. And so you know we say I'm I'm just a, I'm a shy person. You know, we we sometimes take that uh, as a form of humility. They don't make themselves the center of attention and all of that. But the truth is, very often, hear this now. This is how perverse things are with sin. The withdrawn person can actually be a very self-centered person. You know why? Because very often the reason for their withdrawal is they don't want to be embarrassed. I always say the wrong stuff. I don't know what to say. The, The focus is upon you and how you come off to other people rather than you and what you can contribute to other people. Relationships are required if you're going to love. Love is a theme throughout Scripture, but the person who withdraws from relationships can't do any of that. It's very often self-centered. Anyway, we focus on ourselves. The psalmist is doing that. Why are you so downcast, my soul? Why so disturbed within me? But then he does, and that's why it's recorded for us here, for our benefit. The psalmist does what all of us must do. We've got to move from the morbid introspection of ourselves to outside of ourselves where our hope actually is. So the next line says put your hope in God for I will yet praise Him my Savior and my God says again same same verse my soul is downcast within me therefore I will remember you and then toward the end I say to God my rock My bones suffer mortal agony as my foes taunt me, saying to me all day long, where is your God? But then it ends this way. Why are you downcast? Why so disturbed? Put your hope in God. I will yet praise Him, my Savior and my God. Same thing in the next psalm, Psalm number 43. This idea of this internal struggle that goes on within us, this psychological struggle, for determining an accurate picture of who I am that goes on within all of us, the psalmist says it's solved by stopping the introspection and looking extrospectively to God, looking outward to God. Put your hope in God. Lift your eyes above your circumstances and all the things you think about yourself and all the things you think other people think about about you. The answer to your psychological problem is the theological problem. That's what the psalmist is saying. And we see that in an example in the life of David. King David. You guys, many of you know the story of King David. You know that here's a man that's given everything, He's given the monarchy to lead on God's behalf. And he's got all of this power and the adage that power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely is true of everybody, including David. So David is the king, the man. His word is law. And he can, when he says something, it happens. And you all know the story that he, he feasted his eyes upon another man's wife. And he wanted another man's wife. Well, he's the king. He can have what he wants. And he arranges the circumstances for that husband to be off at war. David was probably supposed to be with them. But he stayed home so he could do what he wanted. He violates this, this uh, woman, Bathsheba has a child through that illicit affair, ends up trying to cover it up by having her husband Uriah killed. And it's such a sordid thing, right? So what does David do with it? He sinned, he sinned grievously, but here's the the point for this psychological thing. What does he do with it? And here's Psalm 32. Because Psalm 32 tells you what he did with it. Verse 3, Psalm 32, verse 3. When I kept silent, because that's what he did. (laughs) He kept silent. He hid it. He's going to move on. Nobody's going to be the wiser. Oh, God, that's right. He knows everything. He saw the whole thing. And he can have he can tell somebody else about it. Which God did. He tells Nathan the prophet. And Nathan the prophet is told by God to go to David and get in David's grill and tell David, You're the man who did this. But prior to that, prior to him dealing with it, he's just trying to internalize it. He's trying to hide it. He keeps silent. So Psalm 32 and verse 3, When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. So I was a wreck while all that was going on. That's what he's saying. I was a physical wreck. This moral issue that I was trying to hide from God was causing me physical problems. That's what he's saying. My bones wasted away. My groaning all day long. Here's why. Next verse. Because day and night your hand was heavy upon me. You see, what's happening there is David is being convicted by the Holy Spirit. David's a child of God who has sinned grievously, and God doesn't let his children just go on as if sin doesn't matter. God graciously convicts and brings back. That's what he's doing with David. So David is in this process, he's a a mess, he's a physical mess. God is working on him spiritually, your hand was heavy upon me and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. So that's where I was. I was a mess and I'm a mess because my relationship with God has has been hindered because of my sin and my unwillingness to deal with it with God. The problem wasn't Bathsheba, my wife, or excuse me, the other guy's wife, Uriah's, you know, flirting with him. She wasn't the problem. He's the problem. And ultimately his problem is because he has broken relationship with, severed, uh, broken relationship with God. Day and night, your hand's heavy. My strength is sapped as in summer. Then it says this, then... I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Things changed. Things changed for David when David got things right with God. David is no longer having then the psychological battle and the guilt that's following him around and he's trying to hide it and he shows up at church on Sunday and he acts like everything's just fine. And it's not. But then he goes to the Lord, acknowledges his sin, does not cover it up, confesses, and you forgave the guilt of my sin. Now, I just read you verses 3 through 5 of Psalm 32. I started at verse 3. But here is how that psalm begins, verses 1 and 2. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. That's how he starts it out. He's saying, man, I am in a blessed condition. But it wasn't always the deal. When I kept silent, when I tried to hide it, I was a wreck. I was a physical wreck. I was a mental wreck. I had no strength. The Lord's convicting me. And finally, it drove me to confess, and He forgave me all the guilt of my sin. Praise be to God. Now, those two verses that say, Blessed is the man whose transgressions are forgiven, sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him. Psalm 32 That's quoted in Romans chapter 4 in your New Testament. And the Apostle Paul uses that as the the state of the believer in relationship with God. He quotes those two verses. We live in a state of, of judicial forgiveness before God. Forensic forgiveness before God. Sorry for the fancy term. What that means is all of your sins, past, present, and future, if you've come to Jesus Christ, have been forgiven at the cross. That's forensic. But then there's familial forgiveness, meaning that along the way, as I sin, because I have this relationship with God, mediated by God's Word and His Holy Spirit, then when I sin, not if, when I sin, then I I feel guilty, as I ought, And so, 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That's familial forgiveness. That's for maintaining the intimacy of my relationship with God. Not maintaining the relationship. You'll always have a relationship with God if you're a child of God through Jesus Christ. But the intimacy of that relationship is restored through familial forgiveness. Forgiveness. But what I want you to see here is how many times Scripture points to our God problem as the source of our internal psychological problem. And many a person is going through life trying to fix their personal problems without fixing the ultimate source of those problems, namely their relationship with God. And we think the source is first medical. It may be medical. It may be, but it's not first medical. The first problem every one of us has, every human being has, is their, is their relationship with God. And so, if you're going to have a change of counselor, that counselor is going to be God, and then this is what God says about you. God tells you how to view yourself, how to have a proper psychological perspective vis-a-vis others, yourself, and also God. And God's desire in His instructions for you, in His Word, about your psychological view of yourself, is not for you to have a high self-image. It's not for you to have a low self-image. It's for you to have an accurate self-image. See, an accurate self-image of you and me, according to God, means there's some good and there's some bad. There's stuff that I ought to feel highly about because I'm made in the image of God, because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made, because God has gifted every one of us uniquely to be used by Him in His world and in His work. It's a marvelous thing. Thank God for that. And so when I see that, I thank God for that. And in that sense, have a high self-view. It's a high self-view that defers to the one who gave it, but nonetheless, see myself as positively, a positive self-image. But then if I'm honest, I also know what a sinner I am. And I know how I'm a sinner in my internal thoughts, sometimes in my words, sometimes in my deeds. God knows all of that. I should feel guilty about that. I should bring that to the Lord. That is a negative view of myself, but it's accurate. And what God wants us to have is not positive or negative, but accurate. And people who have an accurate self image and a relationship with the God to whom they can go with the negative baggage they're, they're carrying around, those then are the most joyful and complete and secure people in the world. So I want to read for you a couple of passages from my blog back in May of 2020. And in the blog, I was, you know, you'll remember 2020 was we're in the middle of the pandemic and everybody had opinions about where the the virus came from and what the solution was to it. And I was getting emails from everybody about where it came from and what the solution is to it. And what we should do, everybody had an opinion. Um, One person uh, said that the reason this happened is because people are thinking negative thoughts. And we attract the things we think about to ourselves. And this person who wrote this book is a, a, a woman named Rhonda Byrne. She wrote a book called The Secret. It was promoted by Oprah so it must be good. Uh, I mean, really. You know, we buy books based on what Oprah told us to buy. I'm just saying, there's a resource center <laughs> with better selections. But anyway, she, and she's got this thing that she calls the law of attraction. You attract whatever happens to you. The law of attraction never slips up. There are no exclusions to the law of attraction. If something came to you, you drew it. You are the master of the universe, and the genie is there to serve you. For Joel Osteen, it's the word of faith. He's committed to the notion that faith is a force, that words are the containers of the force, and that through the force of faith, people can create their own realities. As he explains in his mega bestseller, Your Best Life Now, quote, you have to begin speaking words of faith over your life. Your words have enormous creative power. The moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. Now, I know somebody who can speak words out and give birth to whatever they said. I know somebody like that. You know what his name is? God. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. But you can't do that. And Joel can't do that. What Joel can do is tell you you can do that if you buy my book. And then he gets fabulously wealthy and he says, see, this works. Don't get me started. So the moment you speak something out, you give birth to it. This is a spiritual principle. It works whether you are say- what you're saying is good, bad, positive, or negative. He's so convinced that words create reality that he transforms a story in the Bible told by Jesus about a guy who was a paralytic from birth. Do you remember this from John chapter 5 and the guy would be at the pool and people would come there to get healed, but he could never get in? You guys remember that? And Jesus comes along and heals him. Here's what what Osteen says. Jesus encounters a man by the pool of Bethesda just, just quote, lying around feeling sorry for himself. He's lying around because he can't walk. In response to Jesus' quote, simple, straightforward question, the paralytic begins, quote, listing all of his excuses. I'm all alone. I don't have anyone to help me. Other people have let me down. Other people always seem to get ahead of me. I don't have a chance in life. With nary a hint of mercy, Osteen continues, is it any wonder he remained in that condition for 38 years? There's God's grace for you. And there are all kinds of people who think about themselves in ways that other people who have the same problem we have have miscounseled them to do. And what I am saying and what I'm saying in your notes is is that you need a new counselor and that new counselor has to be one who's not Oprah, who's not people that Oprah recommends, who's not Joel Olstein but someone who has taken the book that God has written and said, what does God say about me so that I have an accurate view of myself? That in turn leads to the other two problems and their solution on pages 12 and 13. We've got the theological problem, that's first and foremost. We've got the psychological problem, that's how we view ourselves. We've got the sociological problem. Biblical counselor Rick Thomas says he spent the first 25 years of his life thinking about what he wanted to be after he became an adult. He worked several jobs, but could never find his niche in life. It did not occur to him, he says, that his growing discontent was not because of the jobs he had had or did not have, but because of his non existent relationship with God. And the more he began to understand God, the more he began to understand himself, the psychological problem. And the more he began to understand himself, the more he began to understand other people. The sociological problem. You cannot understand other people well without first understanding yourself. You can't understand yourself without understanding God. That's the order. This is why a man, for instance, may be amazingly prepared by their education and experience for a career, but not prepared to solve their personal problems, not prepared to be married, not prepared to lead a family. You ever thought, have you ever wondered at that? I have met just extremely capable people. They are, they are people in prominent positions in their work life. But they have no idea how to relate to their spouse, how to relate to their children, how to raise a family, any of that. Lots of people like what Rick describes here. And he says, notice how the Bible talks about this logical progression when addressing the qualifications of a pastor. A pastor must be faithful, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, gentle. He must manage his own family well. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of God's church? Now notice, he must work on the theological problem by reflecting God's character. He's got to be faithful, gentle, and so on. He has to work on the psychological problem by managing his own life. He's got to be self-controlled, temperate. And he must work on the sociological problem by managing his own house. It goes in in that order. And then there is the last one, our universal ecological problem. This is where people usually focus. We ask people when we meet them, what do you do? It's not as common for a man to ask another man, talk to me about your relationship with God. What are you learning and how are you growing in Christ? The questions we ask each other and the kinds of conversations we have reveal who we really are. Top of page 13, by ecological is meant how we're supposed to live in God's world for His glory. Some fourth level questions that we often think about is what career should I have, where should I live, what should I wear, a host of other things that surround living in God's world. Sadly, this last question, this last problem typically gets the bulk of our attention. From cradle to grave, this is where most people spend the majority of their thinking time and physical energy. Do you see that instead of going from the top down, God, myself, other people, my world, we start world, and then we go other people, and then there's, you know, whatever stuff I have to fix for myself. But if I can get my world around me fixed, if I can get other people fixed, now I've got a pathway to a joyful, to a, to a happy life. It's all completely backwards. So we're going to continue next week. You guys will get a new set of notes next week. So you don't have to bring these back. We're done with, with these. And we'll look at then how that takes place. How we do this change process in that, in that order. It is uh, 11:59 a.m. This class ends at noon. I'm going to I'm going to pray. I love it when we end right on time. I love to point it out to you, as you've heard me do a bunch of times. This past this past week, we had a uh, senior servants uh, event, and I was sitting at the table with Marty, and Marty said to me, "I love it that you always finish on time." And I said, "Marty, I love you for saying that uh, to me." Somebody noticed. Thank you, Marty. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the blessings of this day to think about the gift of parenthood, particularly on this day of fathers and your instructions to us about raising the next generation for you. Lord, help me help my brothers as, as fathers and as husbands to follow your instructions and to please you with our lives as a result. We thank you for the families that stood before us and dedicated themselves before you and God's people to the awesome task of raising their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Father, uh, we thank you for this hour that we've been able to have together to think about how you and our understanding of you is foundational to everything else, how we see ourselves, how we see others, how we see the world in which you have placed us. Go with us this week and help us to reorder our thinking, to think about you first this week in ways that we did not last. And then as we go forward in these remaining four weeks of this series, to see how to use that understanding and that process to make lasting changes in our lives that will be pleasing to you. Grant us safety this week, we ask you. Bring us back together next Lord's Day, we pray in the name of Jesus, amen.